Welcome to China Matters, the China Institute podcast. Today we will examine the sensitive issue of Hong Kong, which is of interest not only to the people of Hong Kong, but to the broader international audience and to Canadians. We have two individuals well qualified to address this subject, Alejandro Reyes, a director and associate professor of the Asia Global Institute of the University of Hong Kong, who until recently was with the Asia Pacific Policy Planning Unit at Global Affairs Canada. As well, we have Dr. Yukwan Chan. Professor Chan is associate professor at the Department of Asian and International Studies of the City University of Hong Kong. She's also the editor of the Rutledge series on Asia migration and an expert on related subjects. The interview today will be conducted by Dr. Ashley Esserly. Dr. Esserly is the academic advisor to the China Institute and also assistant professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Alberta. Thank you both very much for being willing to join us for this podcast series. I'll just start with a, an initial question, and I'll direct it to Yakua. What do you believe to have been the fundamental causes of the Hong Kong demonstrations that began earlier this year, apart from the catalyst of the extradition bill? Well, this is a tricky question because we have been uh, seeing the protests for over half a year already by now. So um, I guess each period of time has, uh, I mean, the, the different protests has been escalated actually by the re happenings within the process of demonstration uh, itself. But if you talk about the, the reasons for people to be so angry about the government and about different government actions, I believe in the past 20 years, uh, after the turnover, uh, turnover of the sovereignty of Hong Kong to back to Beijing, uh, our government has lacked the intention or to, uh, lacked the, the incentive to, to, to play a, 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 an important role that should be focusing on linking up the Hong Kong society and, the, and, the chi and, and China, uh, the motherland. But Hong Kong government has failed to catch or capture the sentiment, the development of the sentiment, the public morals, the public, the civic morals in Hong Kong. In such a, and such a big gap has made Hong Kong, I think Hong Kong people less and less confident in the government's uh, whatever policy they have put forward. So in that sense, I actually, before I came here, I, I am trying to uh, frame this in a term called cultural misgovernance. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, an issue about cultural governance, but it's, it's a mismatch overall. Great, thank you. Now to, to Al, the same question for you. What are the fundamental causes of these demonstrations that we've seen unfold over the last six some months? Well, it, it is true that there are certainly socioeconomic reasons um, that have been brought up and, and mentioned by many analysts. Um, these include the housing in particular, the challenge of providing adequate and reasonably priced housing for Hong Kong people. And young people are worried that you know, they will forever live their lives in uh, very cramped spaces that they can't even afford. But I, I think 
the protests are motivated by things beyond that. Yes, some of the socioeconomic factors, the healthcare, education, housing, they're important. But an important aspect of the protest has to do with concern about safeguarding the way of life in Hong Kong. The culture, yes, but many aspects of the way of life, whether it be the Cantonese language, the use of it, whether it be the way people shop. I mean, for example, there there have been concerns over many years that the configuration of shopping centers and the shops that are operating in the border areas that they have been reconfigured so that they cater mainly to the mainland market, to visitors coming from the mainland or uh, people coming across the border to, to get luxury goods, jewelry, or to get uh, baby formula or diapers and things that um, they don't trust that they, you know, the quality of uh, in the mainland. As you've seen more mainlanders come to live in Hong Kong, and you hear Putonghua spoken more widely, more frequently, I think that there is a concern among some people that this is encroaching the way of life and and so the extradition bill just sort of sparked concern that part of the compromising if you will of Hong Kong's way of life also included things like the rule of law and the way that society runs in terms of our as I say the rule of law the judiciary and and that there are challenges to that kind of way of life Hong Kong values if you will which are not necessarily sort of the, the pragmatic values that are maybe valued in the mainland, but Hong Kong values, if I can describe them, go beyond. And, and, and it's almost the difference between the thin concept of rule of law versus the thick concept of rule of law. We, we also are concerned about justice and fairness and, and those issues. And, and, and that's all part of Hong Kong's way of life. So, so I, I think that that's a, a key part of trying to understand um, the protest movement. Oh, thank you, Al. Both of your comments are, are eye-opening, and if we can return to this notion of, of, of the importance of culture and, and values and even governance connected to those later, I'd like to do that. I want to move now to look at Beijing and, and, and to shift our gaze to China, if you will. Do you believe that Beijing has correctly carried out its responsibilities under the joint declaration in terms of protecting Hong Kong's autonomy? Well, I guess uh, many people in Hong Kong nowadays, of course, are curious uh, whether Beijing is really concerned about keeping a high level of autonomy in Hong Kong. Because in the past decade, we can see uh, more and more imposition of different things uh, from China to Hong Kong. And indeed, there have been uh, opposition voices, but the Hong Kong government officials seems to to turn up either a blind eye or a deaf ear onto all those vo- uh, voices. And we also see a lot of protest against different issues. But it seems to me the more voices we have heard did not really move the government a bit. Uh, that is why make people very um, kind of frustrated. And also, of course, nowadays we see a lot of anger. Having said that, I would, I would say, what makes a Beijing government able to keep a better promise 
it's not only an issue about Beijing government itself. It's an issue about the connections and how uh, Hong Kong government officials, as well as those representatives from Beijing, uh, work on the Hong Kong issue or Hong Kong governance. We highly suspect they haven't played a good role in that, in having, I mean, making uh, Beijing well informed about the situation in Hong Kong and the turn of the public sentiment. I actually agree a lot with what Alejandro just now said. Well, what I mean by the mismatch in cultural governance, that means the government, the Hong Kong government, does not put all these daily life things or like uh, Hong Kong people treasure their daily life, their way, social, uh, social uh, communications with people and, and uh, buying, shopping and uh, the social space, the urban space. Indeed, when you talk about Hong Kong life, the changes in Hong Kong life in this past decade, most people will tell you the frustration being uh, uh, growing more and more because of the like influxes of the tourists. And most of the shopping places have been, they call it occupied by <coughs> tourists from mainland and who are mostly like one day daily shoppers. They will cross the border mm. and go back China by the night time. Mm. And we are not, well, I'm not uh, denying all these economic bef benefits we receive, you know, have mm. We have over 40 million a year, which is a few times, six or seven times more than the population of Hong Kong. So 40 million visitors from China? Just from China, but we have 60 million tourists of overall. So most people would complain that they have been bombarded by the by all these like uh, crowdedness, you know, in the so in the urban space. And today we we hear people saying liberate Hong Kong, but few years back we hear people say liberate Shanghai, liberate Yunnan, liberate Tumun. The term liberate itself comes from those liberate movement, liberation movement of certain peripheral uh, districts in Hong Kong, which just border with, for example, Shanghai border with China. And it is where many of these mainland tourists, as well as the parallel traders, work on those daily shopping and move goods back to China every single day. And then they just crowded the, the MTR, the subway, the, the, the streets and the shopping mall and the, and the, and the shops. Mm -hmm. that's, that's annoyed a lot of Hong Kong people. I, I think, you know, if you ask whether Beijing has correctly carried out its responsibilities under the joint declaration, I think certainly from Beijing's point of view it has. Now, many people will point out that, you know, it's, it's a matter of interpretation, right? So others will say, of course it hasn't. Now, there have been certainly areas where one can challenge Beijing's assertion that it's followed the basic law or followed the joint declaration. And these might include times where politicians who might favor uh, greater autonomy or independence have been banned, have been prevented from running for office. When you've had the abduction of booksellers, for example, that somehow this is a extrajudicial process that, that has contravened Hong Kong's way of life, the rule of law. So yes, I mean, I think that there are, there's much room for debate. 
um, as to whether Beijing has, but you know, I think a more important question is in, in many ways what Yuko is talking about is whether the Hong Kong government has exercised the full autonomy that it has. Has it actually taken action to do things that it actually can do rather than just be a kind of reactive government, a government that seems hidebound by process, by just transactions. Um, and there are areas where the Hong Kong government really has not exercised the full autonomy, and these include particularly housing, you know, uh, education, healthcare, the environment in particular. The air in Hong Kong is, is, is not of good quality. And so many of those things, a lot of action, a lot of policy, a lot of initiatives can be taken that don't really have anything to do with the mainland or, or have not, not that much to do with the mainland and that can be done, but the government has, has not exercised that full autonomy. I know a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in your views about the violence that's been a part of these demonstrations and has emerged around these demonstrations. And I'd like to get your views on this. Do you feel like both the Hong Kong government and Hong Kong demonstrators bear responsibility for the violence since June? How should we, as people outside Hong Kong, be viewing uh, the violence as it has unfolded in these dramatic encounters since June? Actually, this is in some ways a, a, an easy question. I think, yes, uh, both sides bear responsibility. Now, one can make an argument as to who started it first. But I do remember, certainly on June 12th, one of the earlier days of the protests, I was right there outside the Legislative Council, and I was seeing what was happening. See the protesters trying to uh, block LegCo or break in, and then there were also protesters over where the chief executive's office uh, was. And then I saw the, the police mobilizing, and. And right then I said, something's going to happen already that early on, and we're going to have tear gas more than likely. And, and of course, that's what happened. And I remember texting one of my students. I communicate with a number of my students regularly when I go to the visit to observe the protests. And I said, the thing I noticed already sort of early on in this and what was going on is was, was the police response has been very tough early on and much tougher than five years ago during Occupy, where, yes, they launched tear gas in the first day of the Occupy protests, and they didn't do uh, any more after that. But here you could see that the, the mobilization of police and the use of force was tougher and more sustained very early on. And I, as Kwa has, has mentioned, that has fed the protest to an extent because the focus many of the push has been on the brutality of the police. And of course, now that you have social media even more prevalent than it was five years ago, social media just magnifies the, the view of the police as, as being quite brutal. And it is true that many of the methods that the police have been using have been sort of extraordinary in the context of Hong Kong. Maybe not in the context of, of the West, but in the context of Hong Kong, been quite extraordinary. Yokwa, what do you think about this? I'd be interested if you could speak to the question of the use of violence and why it has been so prevalent now, as opposed to during the last Occupy Central uh, movement in, in 2014, sometimes called the Umbrella Movement. Why have things taken this violent turn now? 
Well, I think uh, within the community of the protesters, uh, most of them have this understanding already. To accept a, a, a certain uh, level of violence is a necessary strategy for pushing forward the movement because it's, it's exactly because of the failure of the Umbrella movement. Because of this, the Umbrella movement had emphasized that it's a peaceful rally, it's a peaceful movement. So all these leaders who are very peaceful will now in jail. So, <laughs> so this has no point, you know, to act or to play this political game with the Hong Kong government, of course, backed up by China now. So that's why they put on the f these frontliners. They call them <coughs> Yongmo. That means brave and radical, and use, you know, they also accept the use of force for protecting themselves and also for pushing forward, you know, the the movement. But if you talk about the police violence, of course, the police <coughs> violence, as Alejandra said, is escalating. It's like it itself has been tougher, harsher, and more brutal. Yeah? And it, of course, will stimulate the emotions of all those protesters. But it's not this time that we see the brutal you know, reaction of the police. Even in the, during the umbrella <coughs> movement, they are also using force a lot. And that's, if you read a lot of those uh, post-movement research, then you will also understand why more and more people join the movements. Many of them claim they never actually go on a march or, or go for a march or do anything political in their life. Many of them are like 20-something years old or 30 years mm -hmm. old, you know, these very young people. Mm -hmm. And they said it's because we, we see it with our eyes how the police treat our kids you know, treat our people, you know, our classmates, then move them there into the so-called war zone. And this time, of course, within these past six months, many of them are like that. The, 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 the frontliners, the radicals, first, we, how many radicals are there? I think maybe a thousand of them. And then they were more or less arrested already by, by the time, like by August. More yeah, and more yeah, came yeah. out. Yeah. And more and more so-called peaceful protesters had turned themselves into radicals because they said that they have to succeed, I mean, succeed the movement, like move on the movement. So, uh, I don't know, I, I think uh, it's really like uh, uh, the, the, the police force, the police violence had made many people become working on more for the, for the movement. May I add just one quick thing? One is that Look, so far, Hong Kong in many ways has been lucky because mm. the number of casualties has really been limited. I'm not talking about people who've been injured. There are many people who've been At least injured. At avoided. Avoided, right. But, but so there were two young people, as I, as I recall, who, who were shot and yeah. they survived. There was one young person who fell from a great height because he was running away from the police. And then there was an elderly gentleman who was sort of pro-police, pro-China, who was hit by a stone by not clear whom, and he died. And he's actually, in some ways, the only one who's died in the course of a, a pitched battle. Now, there have been others who died, and they are classified as suicides. Some protesters believe that they're not suicides, but generally they're regarded as suicides. So if you compare this to street violence that's occurred in places like Chile, Lebanon, Iran, I mean, we are, this is actually quite mild, I mean, certainly. And if you consider that protesters have done such things as 
penetrated the Legislative Council, like going into the Canadian Parliament or entering the U.S. Capitol, and um, they vandalized the place. But if similar things had happened in our Parliament or on Capitol Hill, I think the police in those cases might might have been rather more violent than the police uh, dealt with the situation in Hong Kong. I want to talk about a way in which Hong Kongers have expressed their views powerfully in support of the Democratic parties. The recent election for district offices, I'd like to get your views on this if possible. The pan-democratic parties in the district election got about 60% of the vote, while support for pro-Beijing parties was over 40%. So despite a very positive seat total for the Democratic parties, this election seems to be indicating a fundamental schism in Hong Kong society. What do you think are the prospects for bridging this schism between people who are supportive of the demonstration or voted in a way that is seen as such and and people who are supportive of these pro-Beijing parties? Well, I think the Hong Kong government can play (coughs) a role, whether they are willing to, I don't know. (laughs) Well, it's very clear that Hong Kong citizens are fully mobilized by these summer movements. Within these uh, 60 and 40 percent, I guess um, around 30 of them, 30 percent of them in the past, they were not that active in either putting votes or joining any political events. But now people become very conscious about their own role and play out these citizenship obligations to do things. In this regard, I believe the government, if they have any sense, I mean the officials have any sense of uh, the events of this, I mean the happenings in this past summer, I, I, I think they should really uh, work out communication uh, with the society, whichever levels you know, of the society, to set up channels that people can you know, talk directly to the government and also they have to really understand their role is to connect people in Hong Kong and people in China or I mean the authority in China. I don't think uh, the higher up there really understand what happened to Hong Kong. They have put all these local sentiments as a a well, they say this is the influence of the independent uh, movement. I mean, this is by those people who opt for this independence of Hong Kong. I don't think this is the real or the correct or accurate description of the public sentiment at all. A large number of them have never thought about going independence, right? What you said, that's one way of looking at the elections. But another way of looking at the elections is that you had a a significant swing of voters voting for the pro-democracy camp coming almost from, you know, so so you had about 75% of the seats, I think, controlled by independents and pro-Beijing parties before. And then now you have exactly opposite, about 75-80% of the seats now controlled by pro-democracy. That actually suggests in many ways the, the swing of the vote as being a large part of Hong Kong saying we want voting, we want more democracy, we want to exercise our 
democratic rights. And that doesn't actually gel with the idea that there's a kind of fundamental schism because just because you voted this time for um, pro-democracy party doesn't mean you're anti-China. We have to be careful, right, uh, about saying, oh, just because they voted for the pro-democracy party doesn't mean that they're anti-China or and, and everybody else is pro-Beijing or what have you. It, it's much more complicated than that. And, you know, and particularly at district council, many people would have still voted for the person. You know, I voted for a district councillor who's an independent and more than likely probably pro-Beijing, but I voted for him because I would see him every day in my district and he does his job. He looks after the trees, the cleaning, the environment, the trash, all of that sort of thing. He lost, unfortunately, by 200 votes. But, I mean, many people voted that way as well. So, again, I, I'm not sure we should read into that it just means that we're so divided as a society. And also we've seen these kinds of swings before. A lot of people outside Hong Kong are wondering, you know, what they can do or even if they should do anything. Do you feel like there's a role for foreign governments with regard to the Hong Kong situation? Canada, of course, has very strong interest with uh, something like 300,000 Canadians living in Hong Kong now. Many people, of course, say the United States is involved in some way. Uh, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about this. Is there a place for the international community well, to, to share its yes. views um, concerning this very cosmopolitan Chinese city? Well, look, if I might, um, you know, the United States government and the president of the United States signed into law the U.S.-Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, and this, among other things, could potentially lead to the United States withdrawing recognition of Hong Kong's special status as a separate trading jurisdiction, a separate legal jurisdiction. I think that would be a mistake. So I went publicly against the adoption of this legislation in large part because I think that if one carried out some of the measures to their conclusion, then the net result would be to harm Hong Kong people, particularly young people and their opportunities, uh, and, and indeed undermine potentially the ability of universities in Hong Kong to cooperate with universities in the United States. I was concerned about that, and I am still concerned about that. Now, I don't see any problem with countries challenging China on the issue of Hong Kong. I, I think they should do, but let's not do it in a way that actually might harm Hong Kong people and limit the opportunities or potentially limit the opportunities for Hong Kong and its young people. Take it up with China and maybe do something with China or, you know, th that's the way to do it, in my view. Thank you. Yokoa, what do you think? There's no doubt that now Hong Kong has become part of this, you know, center of focus of world politics. and. It may not be our choice, but it's it's already there. And um, and whether I mean, what kind of results this you know this laws, this international <coughs> politics can bring to Hong Kong? We we have to look forward. We don't we we are not quite sure yet now. But uh, surely, uh, no matter China and Hong Kong now becomes uh, a topic, you know, in in world politics. And. W what I was uh, more concerned when I was talking to people, protesters and politicians in Hong Kong, I, 
I'm a kind of uh, curiously interested in understanding why China would like to see Hong Kong, the situation deteriorate in, in, to such an extent. China in the past decade had played, had put a lot of effort in kind of like uh, enhancing its soft power, uh, like its role <coughs> in world politics, for example. Hong Kong this time uh, has fully deplete China is the soft power it has built up in the past decade. That is, if we have to like give a list of the uh, legacy or consequences of, of Hong Kong summer, 2019 summer protests, I think this is one of the biggest issues for China. And if China want to actually link up with the with the international world, I believe China also need to really reevaluate what had happened. It is in its own governance within China, and also including this greater China, including Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan. What what should be the strategy there if China now wants to be a world leader? It should not be just aiming at a world economic leader. It has to really, you know, build up a, a an image which should be at least welcomed by its own people. Uh, why Hong Kong people now have such a big cultural gap with its motherland is because people in Hong Kong are well impressed by the negative stereotype of China and people from China. So in that regard, I guess there's a big gap still for China to be able to persuade people beyond China to accept China as a whole. I think we have to also understand that you know Beijing has not intervened in any overt military way, which of course there's been much expectation, particularly among the Western media, of a kind of Tiananmen 2.0. And um, the fact that China has not done so and has been restrained, I think that there's, of course, geopolitical issues for that. The U.S.-China trade war, the election in Taiwan, um, the Winter Olympics in 2022. China, it, China, this is not China of 1989. This is, uh, uh, yes, they're not yet, you know, very sophisticated in soft power, but but I think they understand things differently and approach things differently. So the fact that they've been generally restrained at the moment, we of course don't know what's happening behind the scenes because that's very opaque, but but the response so far has been to just watch and observe. And I, they've been, I'm sure, caught flat-footed by the extent of the protests and the vehemence of it. But, but I think that that's well and important to note. Thank you both for sharing your insights and uh, Obviously, this is a, an important conversation for everyone, uh, not just in Hong Kong or Canada, but globally. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of all of the insights you've shared today and hopeful that a related conversation around Hong Kong and its future will continue. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.